welcome Truth Seekers to the Truth Seekers podcast. Sorry I haven't done a video in... Is it this the third week now that we haven't done a video? It's been a while, we've been busy. These two guys have been at the conference and we just haven't got the time to do it again. Also, you will hear a lot of chicks. We just got 80 chicks and we do not have enough duct tape to cover all their beaks. So... You'll have to do with the squawking of the chicks. Chirping. The chirping, yeah. <laughs> Alright, this is going to be the third part on the Revelation study, the Mark of the Beast. And this should cover chapter 13. Yep. And should we just go straight into reading the first few verses? We can do that. Alright, Zach, you want to go ahead and... No, no, am I being voluntold? I feel like I'm yep, being you're, you're totally <laughs> being voluntary. I'm making you do it. You don't make me do anything. I wanted to do it. Ah, uh, fair point. How many verses would you like? I'm going to say four. Four? It's a good, good jump in. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, and his seat, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So I think, you know, the very first thing in here that's pretty obvious there in verse 4, it talks about the dragon. And in the previous chapter, it told us what the dragon was. It was the devil. It's the Satan. And so we can see already as we're coming into this chapter, there's a lot of symbolism being brought in. And I think if we... Keep that mindset, it'll be easier understanding the whole chapter. Uh, in verse 1, it talks about this beast that he's seen coming out of the sea. And of course, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 3 and 17, it gives us understanding that the sea is the multitudes of people of the world, nations, tribes, kingdoms, etc. And so this beast is rising out of the throngs of mankind. And that's important to think about, I think, as, as we're reading through this. This isn't something, you know, that we could expect to be like an extraterrestrial or who knows what. This is something that's coming out of the throngs of man. The other interesting thing that I see in this, between verse 1 and 2, is the parallel with the beasts that Daniel himself saw. Now, he saw them as separate beasts. There was a leopard, there was a bear, there was a lion, there was this other one that, you know, was uh, like, um, uh, like a, a weird beast or dragon. He doesn't really give a good explanation of it. But what we see in this chapter is not each individual one, but an amalgam of all of them together. And that's interesting to think, because as an amalgam, he's probably not referring to the individual nations that Daniel saw, but rather he's seeing something that's pulling all of their parts together. 
And so when I read that, what that begs of me is, what do these nations stand for? What did Babylon, what was it renowned for more than anything else? The Medes and the Persians, what were they renowned for more than anything else? After them, Greece, what were they renowned for more than anything else? And then the, the Roman Empire. Because it's these, these sharp qualities that stand out even till today on most of these that probably are what we're looking for. We're looking for an amalgam of all of these parts coming together. It's also interesting that the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, mm -hmm. he had a dream about all the nations and all their pieces together, and they formed a statue, and then the rock came through and demolished the statue. But then there was the feet, which were a different part. They weren't the... Roman Empire only got down to the shins, was it? Ankles? Mm -hmm. And the feet were some other material. A mix of... Of two materials. They were a mix materials. of the iron and they were a mix of clay. Which don't mix well. No, they don't. And of course, we're going to see, I think, that play into this very chapter that we're seeing here. Because this first beast, as we're seeing it coming out, I think has a lot of representation in Rome itself. Uh, as the last beast of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, but I think there is uh, a change that begins to happen in the context of this text as we read through it. And that's, uh, that's worth thinking about as we read through and see the different beasts that come out. Right. Do you think the seven heads and ten horns has to do with some symbolism? I know it has to do with symbolism, but I don't know what. Well, from chapter 12, we talked about the woman who was uh, clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet, the crown on her head. And, of course, the crown, more than anything, being a sign of authority. The difference being the woman in chapter 12, her authority is given to her by God. Here you have multiple authorities. You have ten uh, heads, ten or seven heads with ten horns and ten crowns. And so you have this division of authority, most likely authority that is given by man, not by God. And so this distinction, because in God, it's the only place we'll ever find unity across cultures, races, nationalities, and languages. Outside of God, you can't find that unity. And that's why in here, you're seeing this division. And this division, as it says here, this is in league with the dragon, this beast. It's got to be a pretty uh, fearsome thing to behold, though, if you think about it. I think about the description of the woman. Very beautiful mm -hmm. in how it looks. Completely contrasting to this. I mean, if you saw this coming out of the ocean, heavens. <clears throat> part run, leopard. You'd be running out of there. Part yeah. bear, part yeah. lion. Mm -hmm. Part dragon, yeah. ghastly in all of its ways. Yeah, even worse too. I mean, uh, wounded to the point where you would think it would be dead, and then mm -hmm. suddenly it was healed. Right. You know, it doesn't say what healed it though. It did. It said the beast. No, it didn't. Power of the beast. It said the beast had power over it. The. It never said that the beast healed it. That means the devil, which is the beast, had a power over this other beast no the devil which is the dragon not the beast 
Well, well, the interesting thing, as you brought in with Nebuchadnezzar's dream, of course, when you come down to the Roman Empire, you have a split empire. And, of course, we see this split in 285 A.D. under Diocletian. The, the Roman Empire splits into the east and to the west. Both sides had Caesars. Both sides had Augustuses. And, of course, under Diocletian, he really began to intensify uh, the killing, the massacre, uh, all the persecution against Christians which of course we're going to see as we come into the next couple verses as we're reading here. We'll see that that persecution comes in and it begins to destroy the church. But as we're seeing this amalgam of, of all these things coming out, I would say what we're looking for here to kind of roll through this story is something that, like Babylon, focuses on religion. It's an amalgam of religion. That's what Babylon was. All religions were there except the truth. And when you came into the Medes and the Persians, they were renowned for their science and their technology. And so this is going to be coming in and playing into this. And when you came into Greece, even till today, they're renowned for their philosophers, Socrates and Plato and all these guys. And when you came into Rome, of course, they were renowned. And, and it's a part of... Uh, the awesomeness in a certain way of this beast as it's coming out because they were renowned for their warfare, their armor, but also for their ability to govern. And how many countries today in the free world have attempted to imitate the Roman way of government? A republic. That's carried through all the way till today. And so you see these things coming together and playing together in one part. But like it says here, it's split. And it's split all the way up into the 300s when Constantine comes in. But before we talk too much about Constantine, we should probably read a little bit more. I just want to point out something else. It's interesting how there's ten horns and you also have ten toes on your feet. Well, and that's the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. Yep. It's bringing all those parts together in kind of a nation, but even one nation that's split between east and west. Or you want to read on to what verse? Probably nine. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and a power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given to him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the land slain from the foundation of the world. If any man ever, if any man have an ear, let him hear. And so again, we see that there's persecution coming in for the saints. And we see this division here. The persecution of the saints, but the opposite side of that is those that worship this beast. Those that see this beast as the answer to all their problems. 
you know, uh, the Roman government conquered poverty. The Roman government conquered the, the barbarian world. The Roman government brought us all of this modern conveniences. Till today, as we get into Rome and are uncovering the ruins, we find, you know, modern conveniences, hot and cold water in houses, septic in houses, all these things that, you know, prior generations, we don't find as much of this as we get into other ruins. And so there was something there that was just marvelous and people were just loving it because it was bringing all these things together in one. But of course, as it says in verse 8, those that worship this are the people whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What does it mean when it says, not written in the in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. It says slain from the foundation of the world, but that can't be talking about Jesus because he wasn't slain since the foundation of the world. Is Jesus bound by time? Is God bound by time? They're timeless. No, I'm just asking a general question. Because that's actually a very good question because you could dive down a very deep deep rabbit hole with your question you could but then if you if you made that point all these numbers in here of 40 and two months make no sense because why would you put that in there when everything has been made since the foundation of the world well what you're splitting here is the parts that are divine and the parts that are human because you have different parts of this that are being spoken of and so when it talks about the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, obviously he wasn't slain from the beginning. But the fact that God knew that Adam and Eve would partake of the fruit, he already had in plan a way to bring man back into his grace. It took, you know, the first 3,000 years or 4,000 years to get up to Christ's period of time in which he was born of Mary, came into the world, and died on the cross, etc. But really, whether or not he had come then, a thousand years later, a thousand years earlier, or whenever, almost is meaningless uh, in that sense. Because even in the book of Psalms, we find David uh, considering that he's not going to heaven yet. You know, he says, even, you know, my Lord will not leave me in hell. And, and the idea being he understands that under the sin of Adam, he can't get into heaven until a Messiah comes. And that when that Messiah dies, retroactively, he is going to come out of that hell that he's in. Which, yeah, hell in a very simple term, is that separation between God and man. Not necessarily speaking of the hell, the punishment that's for eternity. Okay, then what you're saying is pretty much uh, action has a reaction. And if you throw a rock in the sky, that means it already fell, because it will fall. In God's sense, in yes. In God's sense, yes. In Just our sense, no, which is why we measure velocity, angle, and all those mathematics. Right. It's an interesting perspective. It's a deep topic. It is. Well, this is a deep chapter also to get into. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as we're seeing this come in, he's talking about blaspheming against God, blaspheming his name and all these things. And, of course, as we get into his, the historical context under Diocletian and those that came after him all the way up to Nero, they would bring in the Christians into the councils and they would make them kneel down before the false gods and swear 
to not believe in the true God and swear to these false gods. And this is, this is the beginning of this blasphemy that's coming in here. It's not the end of it, it's the beginning of it. And, you know, they're blaspheming, it even says, against those that dwell in heaven. Because it was removing their, their, their holiness, but it was also removing the holiness of all those who went before them. Not in a literal sense, but in the sense that when we start setting up, especially man as saints here on the earth, we're taking away from the glory that God's giving them and making it a human concept. Especially if they're not called by God. And of course, during this period of time, right after Diocletian, all Christians basically lost rights to property, lost rights to be in part of the government. Uh, they were literally non-human for a period of time. They literally weren't. They were used as playthings for the Roman Empire. For in like in games, they would let the Christians run around and the beasts chase them down, and they used as games, money gainers, and we think about how bad the world is today. But really, there's no real comparison to our world today, and even some of our worst. Uh, Christian torments today. You know, you think about the Middle East where they're still persecuting Christians. Uh, in many senses, they're a whole lot more humane today than they ever were. And that's not, not to condone what they're doing, but, you know, uh, even when you get into some of those places where they're beheading Christians, that's, that's actually a very humane way to do it. Rather than putting them into a coliseum with wild animals and letting them get torn to pieces and shredded. Mm-hmm. Not that I would want one or the other for anyone, but things have changed significantly. The thing that changed the most today is our perspective. The fact that we have access to information that's either false or true at just a click of a button, not even a button, just through your Facebook feeds or news feeds. Uh, if you had that during the time period that Rome was going through in conquest, when the Vikings were going through, when Genghis Khan was in power, my heavens, you would think the world was, you would want a nuclear explosion to reset. It was, it was so bad. It's probably a blessing that there wasn't a tech. True. That was like that. I mean, it literally was an uh, apocryphal moment. It was. Very much so. Are you want to read on the next verses? Probably down to 13, I would say. 10 to 13. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the, of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. So now we have this transition from the first beast, to the second beast. Now the second beast I find interesting because it says that as it's coming on, it's got the two horns like a lamb. 
And of course, the lamb in this sense is thinking of something innocent, something uh, harmless, uh, really something almost representative of Christ. Yet, it's speaking as a dragon. And so you have, it, there, there really is a wolf in sheep's clothing here, mm -hmm. in a very literal sense. And, but it's split into two. And that's interesting to think about. And so as you see the, the time period progressing into Constantine, we have, of course, Eastern Rome, we have Western Rome. Constantine comes in and he literally unifies Rome under one power again. He brings them together and one day they're out on the battlefield heading out to a battle and Constantine has a vision. And in his vision, he believes God's coming to him. God gives him the symbol and he's going to create a new Rome that rivals the image and mystique of the classical Rome. And so you have this recreation, except that his recreation literally brings together two forces, Rome and the bishops, the church. And so it comes in speaking as a lamb, and yet it's also speaking as a dragon. And these two forces come in, but now they're no longer under Christ. Constantine takes charge. Of course, they come into one of their very first uh, ecumenical councils in that time, uh, the Conference of Nicaea, where about 300 of the bishops came in, and of course they were, they were discussing very weighty matters, and the one who had the biggest weight in deciding what was going to happen was Constantine. Neither a called minister, neither a baptized member of the church. But he now is governing in the church. So it's speaking with the dragon. But yet it's coming in with the two horns of a lamb. And of course we know that it didn't take very long at all. And the, the ancient church, the apostolic church that came out of the time of Christ is almost immediately split into two. The Roman Catholic and the Greek Orthodox. And they became the powerhouses, slightly different in their beliefs, but not much. Uh, they became the two horns of the lamb that then began to govern the world of Christianity. If you didn't bow the knee to them, you were persecuted. And of course, when you start thinking about it, uh, when we go back to that amalgam of beasts, you have the Catholic Church dominating religion across almost all bounds. You have it dominating technology and whatnot. You think about the whole ancient idea of a flat earth and wonder where those <laughs> ideas come from. They begin investing in technology. They begin investing in, you know, even till today you have areas where the Catholic Church has telescopes to watch the stars. But on the flip side, they begin to invest heavy in mysticism. Constantine's mother, Helena, comes in and begins collecting up all these artifacts and bringing them into the church as a piece of a rope, a piece of a cross, a piece of a cloth, and gives them mystical powers to heal people. And so people come in and they reverently touch these things and receive healing in their body. And that kind of is what we get into there in verse 13. He doeth great wonders among the people. And so there's these miracles that begin happening all over the world coming out of the church through the work that this beast is doing. People begin to take their focus off of Christ and put it in a nail or in a sliver of wood or in a little piece of rope. 
And some of these some of these ancient artifacts still exist in Cyprus and Rome today in churches and are revered as sacred objects that people go up to, burn candles to, touch them, cry on them, pray on them, you you name it. These images of no value. And twelve said that the first the second beast would make the whole world to worship the first beast. That deadly wound was healed. Well, and we see this as we come into right after Constantine and the Nicene Council. What happens? The the Arian sect of the church, which disagreed with the bishops that were there uh, on the idea of the Trinity, they get Constantine to begin banning and and uh, getting rid of everyone that doesn't agree with them. And so they begin using the military of the state to both get rid of and eventually kill and destroy the rest of the believers. Which is interesting because when you're talking about it, especially in here, it talks about the second beast having all the power of the first beast. But, like you said, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. What did the Roman Empire do when you start looking at politics? There was assassinations, plots. The political play was incredible then. Like, he didn't have long life expectancies and retirements in political life in Rome. Well, only some guys did, and that was a rarity. So, but you see that entering into the church almost immediately. Assassinations, briberies, um, who gets who. There was a full-out war between them. There was. And there was cities that were literally divided. They were Christians, but they weren't. Right. We don't go with them. Right. You know, they, we will kill them if we get an opportunity. Very interesting. In uh, 13, I kind of find it interesting how it talks about wonders. You were talking about miracles. Um, there's a scripture that, that comes to mind that talks about what is required for God to show miracles. Like, he would even say the wonders that he would show to Jerusalem and, and like, show them the powers and the things that he had. But he couldn't because of their unbelief. Right. He's doing it in the sight of all men. Has no requirement for belief whatsoever. Right. You know, it, I mean, that's kind of how Satan works, right? I'm just going to show you all power. Yep. And that's how I'm going to take over. There's no fee or entry that, that's known for him to give that. Whereas God requires something of you first. An act of faith and belief. I thought that was interesting just thinking about that when we were talking. And of course, you know, that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when uh, Eve is at the, the tree and the devil's like, look, if you just eat this, you'll get all knowledge and understanding. And so it's this shortcut. And as humans, we often want that shortcut. We want a shortcut to the miracles. We want a shortcut to knowledge and wisdom. We want a shortcut to all the knowledge God possesses. And that's what the devil keeps offering, these shortcuts that in the end are never shortcuts. They're actually typically uh, deadly to us in every way. It's poison. Yeah, we don't want to pay our offerings and tithing. It's us not sacrificing our time and effort into what the long-term God wrote down and told us to do. Mm-hmm. 14 tape letters. <laughs> Absolutely, you know. I mean, that was, that was hilarious, but it yeah. totally lays it out, man. 
Yeah. And, and definitely I recommend people to read the screw tape letters and, and get the imagery in your head because so much of what we're re reading in the book of Revelations and of course in prophecy in general is this has this symbolic meaning. Uh, oftentimes what you're actually reading on the page is not what God's trying to get to us. He's not trying to help us see a beast here as we would imagine something that's going thump in the night under your bed or something. He's trying to get us to visualize something that's extreme in the human sense. We look at this power, this entity, and, and it's a beast. How do you solve it? You know, you think about today so many of the problems that people are, are grappling with, whether it's not enough good clean water or enough good clean food that's not in some way poisoned or modified or who knows what, or even the true side of some of the problems with the continual climate change. You know, the devil keeps selling shortcuts, but they're real answers to some of these things, but the only way we can come to them is to come to God in humility and allow him to give us uh, the right answers. But the devil has this whole game he's playing on the earth to take us down rabbit holes that, you know, never give us answers. Yeah. Yes, literally like in the food system as well, you're going to go to McDonald's instead of go and make your own food, raise your own food that can be organic and self-sustaining and all these good things, but you'd rather go and eat something that's man-made pretty much because that's what it is. I don't think it really has almost any almost any good meat in it at all. <laughs> probably better not to know. Yeah, probably better not to know. <laughs> Wrong podcast, man. Better <laughs> have somebody who likes McDonald's in the room because no one in here is going to defend them, but there's someone out there that will. They still defend have the McDonald's. Best fries. They still <laughs> <laughs> Their oil makes great biodiesel. That's what I hear. <laughs> That's what I hear too, so. Are you on to 14 to? Probably the end, 18. Okay. Go for it. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead, foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. I think it's kind of humorous in a way, reading 13, 14, 15, these verses where it talks about the deception and it talks about these miracles. 
uh, anecdotally a little bit that goes with this. The other day I was reading the news and there was a headline. There was a pastor from one of these mega churches out there that was offering a 100% money back guarantee on tithing that people gave. <laughs> I'm not sure how that, <laughs> that works. Awesome. But that's interesting because this is really what you're seeing in the course of this. You're seeing religion being turned into business, money, uh, superstition, all these things that have nothing to do with the humble followers of Jesus Christ. And so it's just this twist of events. And of course, you know, that's like you mentioned in chapter 12, you have this beautiful image there. Now here you have this twisted image that, you know, no one's going to look at and say, wow, you know, I can really appreciate the way this looks in a good way. It, you're not going to get it. I was, uh, I'm reading the Atlas of Tolkien, and part of it went through the creation of, one, the first people of Tolkien's imaginary world, essentially, which would be the elves. And the elves were taken by Morduk, I believe his name was, and they were tortured and turned into vile creatures, orcs. Mm-hmm. And it's the, the contrast it's that pure, light, beautiful thing that the orcs were, they represented. And then they were changed to these things that were mutilated, couldn't function correctly, and were just the scourge of existence. Going from and elves you kind of see that here. You have that huge, beautiful image, and then you have this thing Beast, that image. shouldn't even function. Right. But yet, it's still alive. I mean, they even go through How many times they mention that? I think three times that it was wounded, but it didn't die. It had a mortal wound, but didn't die. Three times it mentioned that mm-hmm. in this chapter. You know? Of course, the interesting thing here is uh, when you start getting into the whole Mark idea, first mm-hmm. off... Uh, what it reiterates here is, again, three times, the number six. And, of course, when you get into Hebrew and understanding of the Hebrew number, their numbering system, oftentimes numbers have a secondary meaning. Like seven is the perfection of God, the completeness of God. Well, six is the number of man, incomplete. And so what you really have here in a very simple way, if you want to look at it, is this number that's reiterated, this is of man, this is by man, this is man's doing. Don't trust it. And of course we have a parallel to that in the New Testament where God basically tells us not to trust in the arm of flesh. And that's what this is about. This whole beast that we're seeing as it's coming through is everything created by man. When Constantine comes in, begins to take over the church, and the church turns from something that's religious-centric to something that's now political-centric, that now is establishing these cold, hard beliefs. And if you don't follow this, well, you know, we're going to kill you, literally. And that's what they were doing. And you have this change from everyone looking at the Lamb, Jesus Christ, as the focal point, Till now, we're looking at all this symbology, all of this imagery, all this idolatry as a replacement for Christ. And of course, we know when Constantine was out there and had this vision, he sees this symbol that he brings in and puts on all the shields of his soldier. The symbol that's called the, the Chiro or the Christogram, which is the P with the X on it. And this is the new symbol for Rome. 
and it comes and becomes incorporated into the church itself. And that's not to say that it's the mark of the beast, but it's another one of these marks, these symbols that begins to be incorporated newly into the church. And so it's one more step away from what God himself had created. But, you know, when you think about the 666 and the mark and what it says here, uh, that it would be written in their forehead or in their hand, I think there's another important verse that's important to read to kind of give a little bit of concept to what we're seeing here. And that's in Deuteronomy 6.8. This is a flip side, you can say, to what we just got done reading. And in Deuteronomy 6.8, this is God speaking to his people. He says, And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thy eyes. And what was he speaking of? He was speaking of the gospel, the word of God, his word, his commandments, all of that he's saying. You know, he wasn't talking about a tattoo. He wasn't talking about a computer chip that he was going <laughs> to offer us. He was talking about the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we hold dear and near to us. Bind them. And of course, the flip side is what we're seeing now in Revelations. Those that did not trust in God, because, you know, uh, while we're not going to get into chapter 14, but if you go into chapter 14 after this, of course, what it basically tells us is that for the saints and the believers, they're supposed to stand patiently uh, and passionately keeping God's commandments. And, you know, there's a difference there. Not everyone gets this mark because you have another group of people who have this other mark that's spoken of in Deuteronomy, which is they're binding the word of God on their life. And so whatever this mark is, it is the flip of what God's doing because the devil's always trying to imitate God's stuff. And so he has a copy that's corrupt, mangled, just like the image from chapter 12 to chapter 13. Uh, like you mentioned, the elves and, and the orcs. This mangled version of the same thing. Looks the same, shortcut, doesn't have the same positive effect. It actually takes you in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. And so whatever that mark in Deuteronomy is, bound on your hand, bound on your forehead, we can expect that what we're reading here in Revelations is the flip side of that, but made by man, for man, and to take us away from focusing on God. You mean it's not the vaccine? Oh gosh, now my whole belief system's out. <laughs> <clears throat> well, you know, it's not to say that there isn't some thread of truth in so many of those things. Of course, a person has to ask themselves, why are you doing this? Are these your idols? Are these your saviors, so to speak? And I say saviors because I think if people start actually writing on a piece of paper what they kind of expect the mark of the beast to look like for them, they'll find that actually there's all kinds of things across history that meet the requirements that they have set. Absolutely. You know, everything from driver's license to social security numbers to debit and credit cards. And so, you know, if, if what most people consider the mark of beast is the mark of the beast, we're all deep in trouble because we've <laughs> yeah. all got it one way or another. Yeah. And, and I just don't think that's what it's really talking about because like there, what it says in Deuteronomy, it gives us a flip side to that in the godly side. And of course, in the beginning of Revelations, it talks about God's people being sealed. 
a lot of those things that you talked about, there are tools. There's correct ways to use tools and there's wrong ways to use tools. So if you're using those tools, your actions, your thoughts to do things that are evil, then you will be judged by that. But if you're using those with intent to do good, then you will also be judged for that. I was in Phoenix a couple weeks or a week ago, listened to a sermon that Aaron Moser did, and he had a quote from a gentleman, I don't remember the person who quoted it, but essentially it said, it is not what you do on occasion that you will be judged about, but it is what you do consistently. And essentially the thought behind it would be, it's not that we do these amazing things of charitable donations once every couple years. It's what you do every day when you wake up and you go to bed that God is going to look at and judge us for. We're going to be judged for the other things as well. But what you look at over a time period of our lives is you probably spend a lot more time waking up and going to sleep and doing those thoughts and intentions that you do in the mundane life than you would doing anything that you would think would be an extraordinary thing like, you know, giving charitable donations or having those things, unless you do that, obviously, every day. So it was just kind of a quick quote that I thought met a little bit when you talked about the hand-binding and then the eyes, because it's actions, it's thoughts and intents. And your eyes can wander. Mm -hmm. So focus. Focus. And of course, you know, with the thought process that revelations is historically linear for the most part. Of course, you know, we're talking about uh, this period in Rome when we're coming up to Constantine, after Constantine, as we progress. As you get into chapter 14, there's a couple things that come out in, in chapter 14, like I already mentioned. The patience of the saints and keeping God's commandments. But interestingly, at the end of chapter 14, there's a plague that's about to come massive play that destroys a lot of people and interestingly as we come away from Constantine and start proceeding forward in history we come up to about 400 500 AD and according to estimates there's about half uh, 500 million people on the earth roughly speaking we don't really know you know it's just guesstimates there's no way to know for sure but according to you know anthropologists archaeologists their best guesses there's about 500 million people on the earth the justinian plague hits and when the justinian plague hits in 541 to 549 a.d and again we don't really know how many people die but they estimate it could be up to one-fifth of the population of the world that died. And that's a massive disaster. I mean, you think about what we just had with COVID the last couple of years, that's nothing. I mean, that's it was, a, it was a drop of water in an ocean compared to what was gonna hit here when one fifth of the world's population potentially gets killed off. And you know, it just, it shows the consecutive things that are happening here in Revelation as they're going through. God's people being, uh, you know, also sealed, just like the devil's people, those who are worshiping the devil, are being sealed in a way with their actions and in their thoughts. Uh, you know, I, I like, again, being as we've already brought it in, uh, the concept that Gandalf brings in, and he says, you know, it's not the great things, but it's the little things as you were mentioning, that we do that really change the world. 
And there's so much of that that boils down to your hand and your thoughts. What you're doing every day, what you're thinking, what you're repeating, and those customs, those repetitions that are constant. That's going to shape who we are. And, you know, uh, in chapter 14, when you get a, a, a river that runs like blood, uh, when the Justinian plague hits, it's because so many people, like we went all the way back to chapter 11, they praised the two witnesses that were laying dead in the street. They rejected the gospel. They killed the and, and tormented the saints under the Roman uh, rule. Uh, and then they twisted the gospel in the church until it became something that was almost unrecognizable. You have to imagine God was a little ticked off. I have to imagine he was. Someone's going to pay for all that. That'd be about 1.4 billion people today if you had a plague that wiped out about a fifth. Can you imagine? 1.4 billion. And only a few hundred thousand died from COVID? That'd be like almost all of Russia and Ukraine gone. But you think about one-fifth, that's one in five. Think about all the people you know. Oh, yeah. If one in five of them dropped dead. Yeah. That is a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally. And, you know, what we're, we've gone through today is something that's an inconvenience. And, and for some people, a major inconvenience. But the reality is it's not like one in five people dropping dead. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. Sometimes we have to put things into perspective. Lest we lose track of reality. Yeah, and you really got to know the both sides to even put it in perspective or you're going to end up like everyone did these days that shut down everything. There's still people who are completely isolated. Yeah, that. it's oh, kind yeah. of crazy what's do happening in Hong Kong and out in China. It's insane. And I think that's pretty much all, right? Well, that wraps up chapter 13 pretty that much, and, and you know, even a little bit of chapter 14 for those who read on. Yeah. So the mark of the beast is your thoughts and actions, and it's pretty much what it is. And we got to talk about McDonald's, Tolkien, what else did we talk about? Quite a bit of other things. Quite great. a bit, yeah. Yeah, Easter eggs. <laughs> Happy Easter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have spoken. That's our last quote of all podcasts. You're right in, Zach. <laughs>